now. Another individual would be, um, actually, has anybody here seen maybe the documentary American Gospel, maybe, in Christ Alone? If you haven't, you should see it. Um, but in that documentary, if you remember there, it heavily features this woman named Catherine Berger. And her husband's name is Russell Berger, or Berger, however you pronounce it. And he actually was a high-ranking employee at CrossFit, okay, like the exercise company. And he was fired from his role because he supported a CrossFit gym's cancellation of an LGBT pride event, of a gay pride event. I could go on, and I guess you guys have heard more examples. Last week, the Christian cake baker was brought up. We could even talk about the high school football coach whose case went all the way to the Supreme Court just because he prayed on the sidelines at games. I'm sure you've seen the insidious nature of cancel culture, right, and all that that entails. Or maybe you've experienced in your own life this sidelining of your freedom of speech or your freedom of religion, right? In your own life, somehow or another, your freedom to speak or practice what you believe was pushed to the side. In my own life, earlier this year, I was working a job, and at that place of employment, I actually ran into this sort of situation after I spoke out to other employees that they, who claimed to follow Christ and told them they probably shouldn't go to a drag event. The same sort of thing happens all around us. And we would be naive as Bible-believing Christians, if we didn't think that this sort of phenomenon could not and will not affect us. It seems as though the culture that we live in readily throws away the constitutionally provisioned freedom of speech and our freedom of religion of any individuals who speak, act, or believe in a way that goes against the current cultural trend. You guys have all seen this before, right? at some level or another. Somebody's freedom to speak or practice what they believe is thrown away, and that's, that's scary. How are we supposed to navigate this phenomenon happening in our culture today? So, my goal today in this session of our equipping class on Strange New World is to form a biblical uh, worldview on this abnegation, that's the word we're using, that just means a disposal of basic human freedoms. And we're going to do that first by engaging with what Carl Truman says about this issue in chapter 8 of Strange New World. Then we're going to see how the Bible directly responds to this cultural analysis that Truman is going to provide. And then, Lord willing, we're going to provide some, some simple applications for you in your everyday life of living with this phenomenon happening all around you as a follower of Jesus. All right? So first, we're going to go to Strange New World. And I know a lot has been said about this book over the past couple months here at Timberlake, but I just want to emphasize again, it's, it's really, really good. If you haven't read it, you really should check it out. I know everybody said that, but just to say it again, it's worth your time. So a quick review of where we're at so far in our study of Strange, Strange New World. This Truman's main thesis in both this book and in an earlier book he wrote that's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, his main thesis is that the story of the sexual revolution that we see in the culture around us is not so much a story of sex as it is a story of the self. Related to that, Truman will define the self as the notion of where the real me is to be found, how that shapes my view of life, and in what the fulfillment or happiness of that real me consists. From this definition of the self... Truman argues that our modern notion of the self can be defined using the term expressive individualism. 
We've thrown that term around a lot. And just to remind you, according to scholar Robert Bella, expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality, who I am as a person, is to be realized. Truman ties all this together nicely. He says, in short, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. In both of Truman's books, then, he's going to show how this new perception of the self evolved through detailing a historical narrative. And the historical narrative that he writes is concerned primarily with the ideas of a number of intellectual figures throughout history. And to show how these ideas have diffused from these philosophers, these scholars, these professors into the wider culture, Truman introduces this idea of the social imaginary. The social imaginary, and that's a term that was coined by the philosopher Charles Taylor. The social imaginary describes the fact that human beings do not typically think about themselves and the world they inhabit in consistently self-conscious terms. Rather, we imagine it to be in certain ways, physically and indeed morally. That's a really big concept, and I bring it up again here because it's, it's hard even for me to understand. But to put it simply, um, what Truman is saying is that the story behind the profound changes, like we're talking about tonight, that we see in the culture around us, is not so much a story of big ideas from profound thinkers. Instead, the real story is the story about how people as a group have come to imagine the world around them to be, which means that we have to look at this complex variety of factors every time we're trying to understand the trends that have gotten us to where we are. In other words, the thinkers that Truman's going to bring up, the philosophers like Rousseau or Karl Marx, these guys we've brought up, he's not arguing that their ideas brought about the changes. He's arguing that their ideas encapsulate the way people were thinking at that point in time. Does that make sense? What they're saying captures the way that we were already, as a culture, imagining the world to be. And he brings them up as case studies of people that are actually articulating what people like you and I were thinking, whether or not we could say it. Does that make sense at all? I bring that up because tonight we're going to bring up one of those guys, and it's important to see that his thoughts aren't what caused it. He's just capturing what people were already thinking. So all that leads us to chapter 8 of the book. In chapter 8 of this book, Truman entitles it Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. It's a big uh, chapter. It has a lot of information. We're really only covering one stream of the chapter. And in that stream, Truman tackles this trend to muzzle free speech and religious beliefs within the context of his larger narrative about the modern self. And the analysis that he's going to give us here is pretty, pretty startling. So by the end of the chapter, Truman says that freedom of religion and freedom of speech are now regarded by some as a, as a problem for free society. Freedom of religion and freedom of speech are now seen as a problem for free society. Does that seem weird? You get why that's weird? Freedom of, these freedoms that the Constitution gives us in the Bill of Rights in our culture as, are seen in some way, shape, or form as actually inhibiting real freedom from happening. So the key, what Truman's saying here, is that in the examples I mentioned earlier, right, about the Finnish politician, the video we saw of the guy being arrested, Truman is saying that those who seek to hinder the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion of others are actually doing so in an effort to preserve 
freedom. They're cutting out people's freedoms in an effort to preserve freedom. So, either consciously or subconsciously, the freedoms which historically have been seen as basic to American society are readily thrown away to make way for what is now seen as real freedom. In a way, we could say that freedoms aren't necessarily being thrown away. The term I wrote, abnegation, is actually not that helpful. Really what's happening is that freedoms are being inverted. They're being redefined. They're being turned upside down. Are you confused yet? Anybody else? I was confused when I read this whole thing. So let me, let me walk you through a little bit of Truman's observations that lead him to make that claim in this chapter. So towards the beginning of the chapter in a section titled The Problem with Religion, Truman is going to bring up two Supreme Court cases. And he brings up those cases to show this point. Modern society sees the freedom to define one's own self. Michael talked about this last week. The freedom to define our own selves and to define our own identity is seen as centrally important. So these, these two Supreme Court cases he's going to bring up demonstrate how expressive individualism has entered the mainstream social imaginary of our culture. So the first case he's going to bring up is the United States versus Windsor. That case is from 2013. And it was concerned with the constitutionality of previous legislation that defined marriage as between a man and a woman. This case in 2013 would set the immediate stage for a case in 2015 that probably you guys are more familiar with, right? A Burgefell versus Hodges, right? That legalized gay marriage. But this case set the immediate stage for it. And what's interesting for us is particular language that was used in the court's majority opinion in this case. I'm going to read just part of it to you. In their majority opinion, the Supreme Court justices wrote down the avowed purpose and practical effect of the law here in question, remember that defines marriage as between one man and one woman, the, the purpose and effect of that law are to impose a disadvantage, a separate status, and so a stigma upon all who enter into same-sex marriages made lawful by the unquestioned authority of the states. Truman looks at this and he observes that what's happening here is the court is effectively saying that the objections to same-sex marriage in question are nothing more than irrational bigotry. That's what's being said here in some way, shape, or form. To quote Truman again, in Windsor, the Supreme Court dismisses 2,000 years of Christian thinking and many more of Jewish thought as nothing more than irrational bigotry. When the highest court in the land can codify such a view of religion in a judgment, the times and the cultural attitudes have truly changed. Think about that. They're saying there was no reason behind them outlawing same-sex marriage other than they didn't like those people in same-sex marriages and they wanted to reduce their class and oppress them. That's what the court is saying in this decision. But this decision, the Windsor decision, was actually based on an earlier legal precedent, which brings us to the second Supreme Court case that Truman's going to bring up. And that case is Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. This case is from 1992. And it was concerned with legislation that imposed certain restrictions on abortion. Okay? 
There's a lot to talk about here, but for our purposes, what is most interesting is what Truman refers to. And I, whenever I read this book, Truman's a British guy, if you didn't know, so like how the video earlier is way more entertaining because they have an accent. When you read Truman's book, especially after you hear him speak, you hear everything in this sassy British accent, and it makes it way better. Just throwing it out there. But he says, and you can ima- I'm not going to try the British accent, but you can imagine it. He says, it is a bizarre but subsequently influential statement by the, ajo- the, the author of the majority opinion, Justice Anthony Kennedy, in which he described what it is to be a person. That first phrase, a bizarre but subsequently influential. It's like, he's like, eh, it's whatever. So the statement's worth quoting in full. Let me just tell you what Anthony Kennedy said. He said, at the heart of liberty, I think I've got it on the screen, yep, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under compulsion of the state. If you don't recognize this, and you should after being in this class for a while, this is expressive individualism codified into legal precedent. That's all it is. Freedom is the ability to define the world on your own terms. That's all freedom is, to do whatever you want, I think we could say. Which, in fact, is what makes you a person in the first place. In effect, we define ourselves by our ability to define the world around us. So the central freedom at the center of human existence now is our freedom to define ourselves and our own world. That's it. So that leads to the second point that I'll bring up from Truman's argument. Therefore, any speech, system of beliefs, or worldview that goes against one's created identity is by nature oppressive and consequently a threat. So if what's most important about me is the way I feel and my free ability to act on those feelings, then anything that hinders my acting upon my desires is nothing less than a violent attack on my freedom. You guys see how that's connected there? Truman lays this out brilliantly in the next section of the chapter, which he entitles, Not Tolerance, But Equality. In this section, Truman argues that the tolerance of LGBTQ plus identities was never going to be enough for the movement. Why? Because to tolerate somebody is, by definition, to disapprove of them. And it is also not to recognize them, not to affirm their identities as they wish to be affirmed. For those in the LGBTQ plus movement, live and let live was never going to work. It just doesn't work. It's not enough to just let people do their own thing and then move on. No, tolerance won't work. Instead, the only acceptable response to the LGBTQ plus movement that we see all around us today is full-on acceptance, full recognition, full affirmation, and full approval. This is really, really big to understanding what's going on in the world around you. Because sometimes we think, well, I can do my own thing, they can do their own thing, why can't we just all get along? But the feelings, the social imaginary that we swim in leads to a belief that you just letting them do their own thing but thinking that they're wrong is no less than violence against who they are as human beings. To quote Truman again, 
If we are above all what we think, what we feel, what we desire, then anything that interferes or obstructs those thoughts, those feelings, our desires, inhibits us as people and prevents us from being the self that we're convinced that we are. So this means that in our culture, related to what we talked about earlier, words now carry enormous power. If I articulate convictions that seem to go against someone's perception of his or herself, I am, in effect, in our culture, doing violence against their person. I am making an assault upon them. I'm going to quote Truman one more time just because what he says is so helpful here. He says, and this is where religions, especially religions such as Christianity and Judaism, that hold to strict codes with regard to sex and sexuality, will end up in trouble. For example, when the Christian objects to homosexuality, he may well think he is objecting to a set of sexual desires or a set of sexual practices. But the gay man, this is crucial, the gay man sees those desires as part of who he is in his very essence. Love the sinner, hate the sin, simply does not work in a world where the sin is the identity of the sinner. To hate the sin is to hate the sinner. We have to get that. All these old things that we've played around with, thinking you can just let people be and just love them where they are, it does not work in our culture. And so, the only way to preserve freedom in society is to censor, this is according to them in the current social imaginary, is to censor the freedoms of those who speak, act, or believe contrary to one's conception of his or her self. Our society believes that the freedom to define our own existence is central to who we are, which means that any words or beliefs that interfere with our chosen identities are nothing less than attacks on our very person, which leads to a natural conclusion. In order to preserve my freedom to be who I am and to protect my fragile identity from psychological violence, as it were, the freedoms of others to speak or to believe in ways contrary to who I am need to be repressed. In a section of this chapter entitled The Problem with Free Speech, Truman quotes a 1965 essay by the New Left philosopher Herbert Marcuse. And we have a picture of him up here. Pretty cool looking guy. You can kind of barely see him there. But he's got a little cigar in his hand. He's, he's rolling. You know, he's doing his thing. Um, but Marcuse. Marcuse believed that freedom of speech was a confidence trick. A confidence trick. To give the impression that true freedom exists. In other words, the ruling class officially allows freedom of speech and expression while quietly imposing severe limits on that freedom. To Marcuse, freedom of speech is a way of distracting people from seeing the real injustices of the world in which we live. Essentially, people think they're free, but really they're just being fed the same old status quo and going on with life as normal. And Marcuse, who is a Marxist, 
from the teachings of Karl Marx with a lot of Freud, right, Sigmund Freud, thrown in. He kind of combines those two together. And he really wants people to revolutionize. So Marxists want is revolution. They want people to revolutionize beyond the status quo. So what's the answer? How do we get people to wake up, right, as it were? Well, for Marcuse, the answer is censorship. Censorship is the only way to have a free society in Marcuse's framework of thinking. And that seems really weird, right? Kind of backwards. But if you try to see the issue through, through a Marxist frame of life for just a minute, you can see Marcuse's logic. Let me let Truman explain again, because he's way smarter than I am. Truman says, what Marcuse is calling for here is the censoring of speech as a means of moving society toward a more just and equitable state. To allow speech that prevents, presents the injustices of the status quo, whether those are economic, sexual, racial, etc., as legitimate or even natural, is to offer support to those injustices. It therefore behooves the left, of which Marcuse is of course the spokesperson, to work toward closing down the avenues and opportunities for such speech. As Truman evaluates what Marcuse is saying here, he's careful to note that the censorship Marcuse calls for applies to more than simply outlawing insulting language. This is more than just just threats or insulting things. It applies to philosophies and even worldviews. And even those must be policed if you're going to have a free society. To bring this to the present day then, just to quote Truman once more here, therefore, if someone is seen to be speaking in such a way that perpetuates the normative status of heterosexual white males and thereby explicitly or implicitly marginalizing others, whether they're LGBTQ plus people, women, ethnic minorities, etc., such speech is to be suppressed by any means necessary. Truman then looks at Marcuse's thinking and he takes it and applies it to education in the chapter. For, for me at TCS, I found this really interesting with, with what we're doing. Um, I'll spare you a lot of it, but basically traditional views of education saw students as a, as a raw material that needed to be exposed to a wide range of ideas that would help form students into proper adult members of society. But under expressive individualism, the free exchange of ideas comes to seem more like the legitimation of bigotry and ignorance than the foundation for good citizenship. So Truman goes from there to explore further by, by looking at the increasing antipathy on college campuses against freedom of speech, against the, he looks at the transformation of higher education curriculum. And as he's looking at curriculum, Truman makes this, this statement. And I think it sums up everything we've been talking about nicely. And this is a longer quote, um, but bear with me. I think this is helpful. So try to follow what he's saying here. He says, in reference to how higher education curriculum has changed under expressive individualism. He says, And while this may look like left-wing political gerrymandering of the curriculum, it has potency, not because the wider world has bought into left form, new left forms of Marxism and cultural transformation, but because it has bought into psycho- psychologized selfhood and expressive individualism. The claim that certain narratives are psychologically oppressive is plausible to many because our modern intuitions are to see ourselves as psychological beings. And anything that obstructs our psychological happiness, our sense of self, is inevitably bad 
oppressive, and something to be opposed. Listen to this. Victimhood has an intrinsic virtue to it. And anything that can lay claim to the vocabulary of victim has unlocked a major, even irresistible source of cultural power. Freedom of speech and academic freedom, and I think we could also say religious freedom, are simply licenses to oppress and marginalize the weak. True freedom is found in closing down such traditional virtues and replacing them with a victim-centered authoritarianism. Let me read that last sentence again in case you didn't catch it. True freedom is found in closing down such traditional virtues and replacing them with a victim-centered authoritarianism. All right, that's a lot. Tim Borey's looking at me like, yes. That's a lot. But the basic ideas of what he's talking about here are simple, okay? In modern culture, the freedom to define ourselves on our own terms is seen as centrally important. And any speech, belief, or action against our created identities is an assault on who we are. And so the only way for any of us to really be free is to suppress any speech or worldview which may interfere with our self-creation. And of course, there's a ton more that could be said, like who decides which identities are valid and which should be suppressed, but the situation is clear. Radical individual freedom has led to rather authoritarian forms of social control. Freedom, in a sense, has been inverted, redefined, turned on its head, and forced on all of us. So what do we do with that? If we're Bible-believing followers of Christ, what, how do we navigate this situation? Well, to me, it seems like the first place to start is by defining freedom. And we have to define freedom not through the lens of expressive individualists, not from liberals, not from conservatives, not even from the founding fathers. No. We have to first learn how God defines freedom in his word. So for that, I want you to open up your Bibles with me. We're going to turn to John 8. I'm going to look at verses 31 through 36. Let me read the passage to you. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered Jesus, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So this passage in John 8 is actually part of a larger section of John's gospel. Okay, that begins all the way back in chapter 7. And we're there. Jesus is teaching at the Feast of Booths. Verse 20 of chapter 8 seems to tell us that in our passage, Jesus is teaching in the treasury of the temple. And in verse 30, we're told that as a result of Jesus' teaching there at this feast, Many of the Jews believed in Jesus. However, by the end of the chapter, these same people who had believed in Jesus will be picking up stones to stone Jesus. That's verse 59 of chapter 8, which will prove their faith to be invalid. So the passage that we're looking at here is part of a broader conversation in which Jesus is exposing the false belief of people who had trusted in him. It's a big theme throughout John. 
So unfortunately, we don't have time to cover the whole of the passage today. But what we're going to do is make three simple observations from the text that I think will help us with navigating the inversion of freedom that's in our society. To do so, we're actually going to start from the bottom of the passage and we're going to work backwards. Okay? We're going to see how Jesus defines freedom. Then we're going to look at how Jesus says we can become free. And then we're going to see how Jesus says we can find what we need to become free. So first, first idea here from the text. Jesus says that real freedom is freedom from slavery to sin. Jesus defines freedom, real freedom, as freedom from slavery to sin. Look at verse 32, if you can, with me. The end of, of verse 32. Jesus tells these Jews who have believed in him how they can become free. And then in verse 33, they ask, how is it that you say you can become free? And so then in verse 34, in response to their question, Jesus defines freedom. And he does so by explaining what the bondage is that these false believers are caught in. And that bondage is slavery to sin. In other words, real freedom, as I said, is freedom from slavery to sin. Perhaps to put it more in line with our study in Strange New World, real freedom is not freedom to express ourselves. Real freedom is freedom from ourselves. Real freedom is not freedom to define who we are on our own terms. Instead, real freedom is freedom to submit to God's definition of who we ought to be in Christ. Real freedom is not freedom to attempt to be our own gods as we try to create our own realities. Real freedom is freedom to return to God's original purpose in His reality and live for His glory. The freedom that Jesus brings, which verse 36 refers to as being free indeed, is freedom from the curse of sin, freedom from depravity, freedom from our twisted desires and broken moral compasses. It is freedom from the deadness of our hearts and the wrath of God that we justly deserve. In his commentary on John, I love how D.A. Carson puts it. He says, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. Second observation. Jesus says that freedom from slavery to sin only comes through knowledge of the truth. So how do we get this freedom Jesus is talking about? Well, look at verse 32. Jesus says that real freedom comes only through a knowledge of the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That word truth is a loaded word in the book of John. For example, in chapter 1, we're told about the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we're told that he was full of grace and truth. In John 14, Jesus says that he himself is the truth. And in John 17, Jesus tells the Father, your word is truth. So what is Jesus talking about here? I think it's something like this. Real freedom comes through a knowledge of the singular objective reality about all of existence as revealed in 
and defined by Jesus Christ. God is the author of truth. God alone defines truth. And when we understand the ultimate truth about reality, as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for all who believe through his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection, then, by the Spirit's power, we can find freedom. That is, according to verse 36, we can be made free by the Son. To put it another way, in reference to our study, the self-created truths that so many in our world create to try and satiate their own desires can never provide the freedom they promise. These people who try to define their own truth and their own reality and try to live in accordance with that to find freedom for themselves will never find freedom. Our slavery to self can only be broken through the truth of the gospel. All right, third observation. Jesus says that knowledge of the truth is learned by abiding in Jesus' word. So how do we learn the truth? The answer is obvious. We learn Jesus' truth by abiding in Jesus' word. And while in the context of the Gospel of John, we might say that the word Jesus is referring to is the, the message, the content of Jesus' message and teaching, I think we could, by extension, understand this verse to be referring to God's word as, being, as revealed in the Bible. Objective truth, and especially the truth of the good news of Jesus, is learned through remaining in the word of God, by studying it, by continuing in it, by growing in our familiarity with it, and by obeying it. And so real freedom from slavery to sin comes from knowledge of the truth, which is learned through God's word. As cliche as it sounds, this is the answer that's like, uh, really? The Bible has the answer for the current cultural confusion. At the end of the day, the freedom that so many are looking for is found in the pages of this book. That's where it comes from. All right, so I hope you're still with me on some level. I know we've gone through a ton. Let me try to put everything together. Modern society that we live in, modern society says that we need to be free to create our own identities at any cost, which means that any who dare to speak or believe in a way that interferes with our acts of self-creation should be canceled immediately. In contrast, Jesus says that real freedom is not freedom to express ourselves, not freedom to act on our desires, but freedom from slavery to sin, which comes only through a knowledge of the truth of the gospel, which is learned by abiding in God's word. Hopefully, if all of that's kind of clicking together for you, you can see the natural application. If we're going to follow Christ in this world, then even though the world might not like it, we are called to boldly share the truth of the gospel. I think most of you guys here on a Sunday night would know this. When I taught this at faculty orientation at TCS, I, I went from here and I broke into how, how we're called to be clear about people's greatest problem and to how we should be bold for the gospel and how we love other people well by telling them the truth. But the Sunday night crowd at Timberlake Baptist Church, I would imagine, on some level, you understand that. You're called to stand and be bold for the gospel. But if you're anything like me, especially after looking at the video I showed you earlier or talking about the stories we talked about or hearing what people say when you try to tell them any sort of truth sometimes in our culture, your question, though, is, is how? What does that look like practically, right? 
How, how does this work on the ground level? Yes, be bold for the gospel. Does that mean I just run and yell the gospel to every single person I meet on the street at all times? Well, what does this mean? How do I live in that way? How do I share the gospel with my worldly coworkers? And how do I continue working with them after they just laugh at me when I share the gospel and don't want to hear it anymore? How do I apply my call to be bold for Christ to my relationship with a homosexual family member? How do I go about sharing Jesus with others at all, especially in a world where in my evangelism could be seen as a violent assault upon their person? So to try to, to give some help there, hopefully this is helpful. It was helpful for me. I want to look really quick at the book of Colossians. If you wouldn't mind looking. I, in, in chapel at CCS, we're going through the book of Colossians right now, and I've just come to really appreciate this book. Um, super helpful. Paul's actually addressing worldly philosophies coming into the church in context. Um, but Colossians 4, 5 through 6, I think can give us some, some quick practical advice to close us out, and then we'll, uh, we'll open up for any questions you guys may have. Um, so Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Paul writes to the church of Colossae, and he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So from these two verses, I can see at least four, there's probably more, but at least four instructions that Paul gives for how we ought to live in this strange new world. So really quickly going to run through them. I'm not going to break them down. I'm just going to give them to you. Hopefully they're helpful. Um, first one from the first part of, chapter, of verse five, pay careful attention to the way you live your life. If you're going to try to speak truth to others and share the gospel with them when they might not like it, don't give them any reason in the way that you live your life on a daily basis, especially around them, to say that the truth you're sharing is not valid. Your behavior matters in addition to your speech. It's not that we can share the gospel without words. That's not a real thing. But it does mean that if you're sharing the gospel, your life better back up that you've been changed by the gospel. So pay careful attention to the way you live your life. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders are unbelievers, those outside the faith. Second one, make the most of every opportunity. When the Lord gives you an opportunity to share truth, take it. Tell the truth. Say what the Bible has to say. Bring up the gospel. Bring up Jesus. Paul says, in this verse, he says, making the best use of the time. In the Greek, it's literally just redeeming the time, buying back the time. You only have so much of it. Make it count. Third one, let the way you speak to others be marked by graciousness and saltiness. I use saltiness because of the phrase in verse 6, where it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So gracious speech would be speech that's, that's kind, that's considerate, that, that shows that you care about others even while selling the truth. It's speaking the truth in love towards other people. But saltiness here, there's a little bit more debate. It could have to do with the idea of, of your speech has a purifying influence on those around you. So MacArthur says, I think that's a good interpretation. Other commentators talk about that it has to do actually with having speech that, that is interesting. It's, it's winsome. You're, 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 you are engaged and you, people can tell that you care about what you're speaking about. And you speak in such a way, you're not just like, oh, Jesus loves you. All right, bye. You try to run away, you know? You share the gospel. You share it as something that has changed you. You speak in such a way that people want it. So let the way you speak to others be marked by graciousness and saltiness. And then fourth idea is recognize that each individual person will require a specific 
well-thought-out response. Each individual person that you encounter is going to require a specific, well-thought-out response. Paul says at the end of verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's pretty clear. You can't just have a blanket statement. Think that you're going to roll in there and change the world for Jesus. You go in there, you tell them the truth in that context as you need to speak it. Yes, the blanket statement is Jesus saves, you need to trust in him, right? But we have to have wisdom from God's word on how we we respond to each person who we speak to. Um, So recognize that each individual person will require a specific, well-thought-out response. So I'm about done, but I want to give a disclaimer, because even with these points, it can seem, well, maybe there's a way that I can navigate things in this world, in this culture, and I'll avoid the the cancel stuff, the, the losing my freedom of speech, my freedom of religion. Maybe I can avoid that. But I don't think there's any way for believers that we can avoid being persecuted for the truth, right? Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 4.12. Peter tells us to not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. While modern Christians may experience a particular sort of persecution in this age of expressive individualism, the reality is that being attacked, mocked, or criminalized for the truth is not a new thing for Christ's church. And feeling pressure from the culture to bow the knee, as it were, has been felt by God's people throughout the entire history of this fallen world. If you choose to be bold for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of this dark world, then you can expect consequences for your stance. You might understand why they do it, but they're still going to do it. It's just the fact of the matter. The question is, will you give in, or, as we saw from John 8, will you endure to the end and so prove to be truly one of Jesus' disciples? And if we should face cancellation, arrest, mistreatment, or even one day death for our allegiance to Jesus and his word, may we say, in the words of the great reformer Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. Let me pray to close and we'll go to any questions you guys might have. Lord God, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for your word. God would speak so clearly and so truthfully into our current culture. Lord, there's nothing new under the sun. God, uh, your word has all the answers that we need. And God, I pray that we would be able to know firmly what freedom is, that we would uh, see clearly in the lives of others that their greatest need is freedom from slavery to sin, and to be saved from the wrath of God they justly deserve through the work of Jesus on the cross and through his empty tomb. And Lord, I pray that we might be empowered to be bold, to, to say the gospel, to not, not care about what others think, in a sense, to tell them the truth because we have a firm conviction that it's what's best for them. And God, I pray that as we do that, we might realize that loving other people in the world around us, loving our family members, loving our coworkers, um, loving our friends, means that we have to share the truth with them. We have to tell them what they need to hear, not always what they want to hear. And God, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to do that. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There's a lot. Any questions before we wrap up and and close for the evening from that section at all? None? I'm fine with that, because I don't really know if I want to answer any. Yeah? Yes, sir. Okay. 
Mm -hmm. So I think it has to do with the question of victimhood, right? There are narratives and stories within our culture of victimhood that have been traced, wherein people of certain um, sectors or groups maintain a, they have a more important grasp. The, the theory is intersectionality. So if I am, basically, it's how many categories I can intersect in that lead me to have the, the strongest voice. So if I'm a, a handicapped, lesbian, black, transgender indi uh, woman um, of indigenous descent, then I have the strongest, most authoritative view on any situation that can be spoken. And so you or I, as white, heterosexual, Christian males, they might not see our voice as having the same sort of credibility within that conversation. I think that's dumb, but that's the way the culture is going to divide things based on this theory of intersectionality, which really, honestly, most people believe in on some level, I think. Uh, not that we believe it, but most of the world believes on some level, even if they can't articulate that. So just an idea. Any other thoughts or questions maybe from that? Yes, sir? Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have homosexual family members as well, and even one that um, you know, doesn't even relate with our family anymore. And it's, a lot of it's because truth was spoken to him. And it's, it's, it's hard to know. It's hard to ha know how to have wisdom there. So yeah, I definitely appreciate that. Yes, sir. Anybody else? All right. Oh, yes. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's definitely a situation-specific thing. So the company I worked at before, they, um, we had business partnerships with um, some other businesses and those businesses were owned by a lesbian couple, and so it was direct, like kind of business relationship with them. And they they actually specifically catered to lesbian clients, a lot of times. Um, and it was hard to know how to be wise in that situation. I would say if you're looking at something where you're specifically setting up displays, like I've seen in Target, like when you go in, right there's Starbucks, and it's right here, right the big gay pride thing with like onesies with a rainbow on it. Yeah, um, I would say as a Christian, you have to look at is my action here going to further propagate a message that could influence somebody else specifically? Like that would be a first place to start. And I would say with the display or something like that and helping set it up, you're helping directly to propagate a message which stands against the truth of scripture. Um, so yes, work with gay coworkers, be kind, all of that sort of, like if you know, you're working there and you're both setting up a, you know, a food display together, whatever, that's fine. But if you're asked to set up a display that directly speaks against truth, I don't know if you should. I don't. I don't know if you should communicate in that. That would be my opinion. Same thing would be if, like, you know, if if Target was to set up a display for for serial killers that influence people that want to kill people to own it and be fine with it. It's celebrating a sin, right? And you wouldn't do that because in our culture, oh, that's wrong. But this other sin is controversial. So maybe you know, maybe I should just do it to love them well. But it's still sin. Sin is sin. That's what it is at the end of the day. But just my thoughts. Anything else? All right. Well, you guys are dismissed then. Thank you so much for listening. Appreciate your time. Thank you.